G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman, and the case we're looking at today involves a few property transactions that didn't benefit the older person in any way, but did benefit her daughter-in-law. So either the older person is being incredibly generous, or just maybe something dodgy is going on. In 2005, Georgette Dayer went from owning a 66% interest in a property at Newport to owning 50% as joint tenants with her daughter-in-law, Helen Dulaveris. Not only did she lose 16% of the property, but she also lost the right to determine who got her share when she died. Because when people own property as joint tenants, the effect is that on the death of the first tenant, the second tenant owns the property by right of survivorship. Georgette's son Basil claimed that at the time of the transfer, his mother did not have the capacity to understand what was happening. Because of her lack of capacity, Basil also acted as her tutor to run her court case on her behalf. But first, a little background. Georgette was born in Egypt and could speak Greek, Arabic, English, French and a little Italian. She and her husband lived in their matrimonial home at Marrickville in Sydney's Inner West for 35 years until his death in November 2000. They had two sons, Spiro Deo and Basil Deo. The older son Spiro is married to Helen Dulaveris. The younger son Basil is married to Mandy Deo. After her husband's death, Georgette continued to live in the Marrickville house, despite concerns her two sons had about her living alone given her age and deteriorating health. Georgette had not been in good health even prior to her husband's death. In 1994, she had suffered a stroke, which caused her difficulty with talking and reading. In October 2001, Helen Dulaveris purchased a property in Newport in northern Sydney for $625,000, and in December, Georgette moved into Helen's new house with the help of her two sons and their wives. Georgette's house at Marrickville was rented out, and all rental payments received were deposited into Helen's bank account. So she's living in Helen's house in Newport, but in a way she's paying rent because all of the rent from her own property is going to Helen. Around the time Georgette moved to Newport, her son Basil and his wife Mandy did their best to assist Georgette with her domestic, financial and health matters. They visited her up to four times a week, despite the considerable distance. It was a two-hour round trip to visit Georgette in Newport, and they were making the drive up to four times a week. At this time, Helen and Spiro, together with their three children, lived in Saudi Arabia, and were unable to provide practical assistance on a regular basis, although they did visit Georgette on several occasions each year when they returned to Sydney. On the 1st of November 2002, Georgette made a will, prepared by her solicitor, Mr. Horrigan. The will appointed Spiro and Basil as executors together and gave the whole of her estate to them in equal shares. On the same day, she signed a power of attorney, which appointed Basil to be her attorney to be in charge of her finances if she lost capacity. In early 2003, Helen returned to live in Sydney permanently with the children and Spiro joined them in 2004. After this, it seems Georgette relied on both her children and their wives for practical assistance. Why is this important? Why am I giving you all of this 
background information? Well, I think in a case like this, it's the kind of information people want so that they can assess the decisions the older person has made. If you've got one child who is providing most of the care and has a closer relationship with the older person, it can make more sense when the older person is more generous with that child. If the responsibility is shared equally between the children, you wouldn't expect to see one of the children favoured above the other. In this case, it appears that Basil and his wife provided more care and assistance to Georgette for a longer period of time, especially as Spiro and his wife were living overseas. But you can also see that in Georgette's testamentary intentions, in particular in the first and third will, she wanted to leave her estate equally between her two sons and didn't appear to favour one above the other. In November 2003, Georgette sold her Marrickville home and used those proceeds to buy a 66% share of Helen's new port house. The other 30% interest in the house continued to belong to Helen. At the time, the new port house was worth 895000 so a 66% share would actually have cost 590000 However, Georgette paid 691000 for the share, so 100000 more than it was worth. But this discrepancy was not the subject of the court proceedings, so they didn't look into it any further. On the 22nd of July 2004, Georgette made a second will, again prepared by Mr Horrigan, which named Basil and his wife Mandy as executors, and gave the whole of the estate to Basil and in the event of his death to Mandy. Georgette must have changed her mind though, because the very next day she made a third will, again prepared by Mr Horrigan which appointed Spiro and Basil as executors and gave the whole of her estate to them in equal shares, so changing it back to be the same as it was in the first will. A few months later in October, Georgette did a new power of attorney, this time appointing Basil and Spiro jointly as her attorneys. A year after doing her third will, on the 8th of July 2005, Helen took Georgette to see Helen's solicitor, Mr Smith. It was here that Georgette made her fourth and final will, under which she gave the Newport property to Spiro if Helen died before her, and the residue of the estate was to go to Basil and Spiro. It should be noted that the Newport property is the major asset owned by Georgette, so the residue being divided between Basil and Spiro wouldn't be much. At the same appointment with Mr Smith, Georgette also signed some transfer forms to change how the Newport property was owned. It changed from Georgette owning 66% to having 50%, as a joint tenant. She not only transferred 16% to Helen, but the joint tenant part is important. The effect of the joint tenancy is that if Georgette died first, which given her age and health was most likely, her 50% share in the property would automatically become Helen's. However, if Helen died first, Georgette would own 100% of the Newport property, and under her fourth will that she had just done, Georgette leaves the Newport property to Helen's husband, Spiro. So whichever way you cut it, Georgette's other son Basil wouldn't get a share of the Newport property. Basil knew nothing about the transfers until almost a year later in April 2006 when a conversation with Georgette made him suspicious. He ordered a property search and discovered the transfers. The Injunction the Newport property was listed for sale and scheduled to go to auction on the 23rd of December 2006. 
Basil found out about the auction in early December when Georgette telephoned him that there was a large billboard that had been erected in her front yard, listing the property for sale. Basil contacted his solicitor, Mr Horrigan. This is the same solicitor who prepared Georgette's first three wills. Mr Horrigan telephoned the real estate agent and was informed that they did have an agency agreement to sell the Newport property, signed by both Helen and Georgette. Basil was concerned that the sale was not in Georgette's best interest, and that she had not understood the document she had signed to sell the property. So he made an application to the court to prevent the sale of the Newport property. He wasn't eligible to apply on his own behalf, but he made the application on behalf of his mother, as her tutor on the basis that she didn't have the capacity to make the application herself. On the 14th December 2006, Justice Brereton granted an ex parte injunction. Ex parte is Latin and it means for one party. And in this case, what it's referring to is that Basil's application was heard before the court without Helen being present. So normally both sides must be present and they both make their own arguments and the court makes a decision and orders. Because of the urgency, because the house is to be sold in nine days' time, there wasn't enough time to allow all of that to happen, to allow Helen to be notified and for her to present her side to the court. So the ex-party orders are basically temporary orders based on Basil's application alone, allowing the court to make temporary orders to prevent anything else from happening until a proper court hearing can take place. An injunction is a court order directing a person to do a certain thing or not to do a certain thing. In this case, the court-ordered injunction prohibited Helen from selling, mortgaging, leasing or otherwise dealing with the Newport property. Helen was served with the court order, stating that she wasn't to sell, mortgage or otherwise deal with the Newport property. Only a few days after getting the orders, Helen applied to the court opposing the injunction. On the 19th of December 2006, Justice Brereton maintained the injunction and stated that it would stay in place until the court made new orders. Almost a year later in November 2007, no further court orders had been made and the injunction was still in place. Helen and Spiro purchased a property at St Ives for $1,060,000, which was transferred into just Helen's name. Helen paid the 10% deposit, but all other purchase monies were provided by a bank loan, which was secured by a mortgage over the newly purchased St Ives property and also the Newport property. The mortgage over the Newport property was signed by Georgette and Helen. In signing this mortgage, Helen breached the court injunction, which expressly stated that she could not mortgage the Newport property. Georgette received no independent legal advice in relation to the mortgage, or indeed any advice as to whether it would be in her best interest to mortgage the Newport property, her only significant asset. Basil began legal proceedings on his mother's behalf to reverse the transfers and the mortgage. At the time of the trial, Georgette continued to live in the Newport property and appeared to be quite happy there. The Court Hearing One of the issues the court looked at was the fact that Georgette's fourth will and the transfers were not done with Georgette's usual solicitor. Instead, they were done with Helen's solicitor, Mr Smith. Mr. Smith was a solicitor Helen had used before in June 2005, when she was thinking of selling the Newport property previously. Helen claimed that Georgette knew Mr. Smith as well, well enough at least that she would wave to him in the street. Also that Georgette had always been with her and Spiro when they visited Mr. Smith's office in relation to the sale of the Newport property. 
Helen claimed that it was Georgette's suggestion that they see Mr. Smith to arrange the transfers, and that Georgette had said on occasions, this house is yours, or I want you to have it. When Mr. Smith was cross-examined, however, he said he met Georgette for the first time on the day she made the fourth will, when she came into his office and was introduced by Helen as her mother-in-law. He also said that he did not remember Spiro being present. The court found Mr. Smith to be more believable on this matter. Initially, Helen denied communicating with Mr. Smith before the day the fourth will was made. However, she later admitted she had had discussions with him several days earlier about the creation of the joint tenancy in the Newport property. Mr. Smith's evidence was that Helen rang to arrange an appointment to change ownership of the Newport property so that they held it as joint tenants. Based on her instructions, Mr. Smith prepared two transfer forms. Going back to the 8th of July 2005, the date of the fourth will, Mr. Smith could not recall whether it had been Helen or Georgette who gave him the instructions on how to draft the will. However, he said that he spent considerable time with Georgette, making sure that she understood it, and when he was satisfied that she did, he witnessed her signature to it. Mr. Smith had already prepared the two transfer forms based on the instructions he received earlier from Helen. The first transferred 16% interest in the property from Georgette to Helen, thus giving them 50% each. The property was valued to be 825000 at this time, and the transfer form stated that Georgette was getting 132000 for transferring 60% of her share to Helen. That 132000 has never been paid. Helen at first said that the agreement between herself and Georgette was that Helen was not required to pay this money. Later, she changed this to saying that she was only required to pay it to Georgette if Georgette needed to move into a nursing home. The court didn't accept these accounts and concluded that Georgette had not received adequate advice from Mr. Smith about this payment. There was a second transfer form which created the joint tenancy I spoke of before. So after transferring the 16% share, they hold the property 50% each as tenants in common. This means that they are each free to leave their half share as they like in their respective wills. But with the second transfer form, they are transferring ownership from tenants in common to joint tenants which means that if one of them dies, the other gets the house in full. Mr. Smith thought it was appropriate for Georgette to receive independent legal advice to ensure she understood the effect of transferring the house to joint tenants. He sent both Georgette and Helen away to seek this independent legal advice and get the transfer signed. Later the same day, the transfer was returned, signed by both Georgette and Helen before a witness who was named on the form as Lillian Jurgis. Helen said she took Georgette to see a solicitor around the corner from Mr. Smith's office, but could not remember this other solicitor's name. On the form, the witness to Georgette and Helen's signature was a Lillian Jurgis. However, when cross-examined, Helen could not remember who Lillian was, and she said she thought she was a solicitor who worked in Mr. Smith's office. Mr. Smith did not know a Lillian Jurgis. The court did not accept that they had seen another solicitor or that any legal advice had been given to Georgette. Mr. Smith said he explained the effect of the transfer, not the wisdom of the transfer. Another issue at trial was the injunction that prohibited Helen from selling or mortgaging the Newport property, which she had breached when she mortgaged the property in late 2007. Helen was cross-examined about the injunction that she had breached. She stated that she was not aware that the court order prevented her from mortgaging the Newport property, only that she couldn't sell it. The court did not believe this. First, because Helen said she had read the order of the court before she took it to her solicitor. 
Second, because Helen was present in court when the orders were upheld on the 19th of December 2006. Third, because Helen acknowledges that the solicitor acting for her, Mr Hughes, took her to a conference room in the court building to explain what had happened in court. Mr Hughes said he explained the consequences, restrictions and effect of the order and that Helen did not ask him any further questions. And fourth, in case there was any doubt, Mr Hughes sent Helen a letter on the 22nd of December which explained the effect of both orders. Helen claims that she did not receive or read the letter, although it was addressed to her, and said that such correspondence was typically handled by Spiro. The court was not persuaded and found that Helen was aware of the terms of the injunctive order and that she had breached them. Capacity Previously I mentioned that Georgette had suffered a stroke in 1994, which made it difficult for her to talk and to read. The solicitors who had prepared Georgette's wills, Mr Horrigan and Mr Smith, both said it took a considerable time to explain the draft wills to her, although they both said that they were satisfied that she had sufficient understanding of them at the end of their explanations. Helen said that both transfers were what Georgette wanted, they were not brought about by her suggestions, and that Georgette understood what she was doing. Basil and his wife Mandy, however, claimed that while Georgette would understand phrases like 50-50 or equal shares, she would not have understood the concept of a transfer of part of the Newport property. Basil and Mandy's evidence was supported by the expert opinion of Dr Ross Mellick, a neurologist. Dr. Malik examined Georgette in November 2007. He did not take a history from Georgette. The stroke she had had in 1994 caused a speech disorder known as aphasia, which impairs her ability to be understood and to express herself. Dr. Malik said, and I quote, It was not possible to communicate adequately with her to establish an adequate history or to perform mini mental testing, end quote. He noted that she formally spoke five languages and said that she, quote, Regrettably has considerable speech deficits in all of those languages. She tends to try to communicate with snatches of conversation in either Greek, Italian or English. End quote. Dr. Malik's opinion was that, in addition to the speech disorder, Georgette suffered from a problem in cognitive functioning, which affected her ability to understand concepts, such as a contract or a part that is one sixteenth of a hundredth of something. He gave Georgette a copy of the transfer form and she could not comprehend the words in the document. Dr. Malik reported to the court that the stroke and its side effects severely impaired Georgette's ability to understand written and spoken language and that her condition inevitably affected her cognition. The medical evidence would seem to indicate that Georgette's capacity was affected ever since her stroke in 1994. However, the court didn't rely on this medical evidence alone and needed to determine to what extent Georgette's capacity was affected. Basil said that his mother told him in April 2006 that the house belonged to Helen and that she was unhappy as she wanted everything to go to him and Spiro. At least this shows that she knew that something had changed, even if she got the details incorrect. Undue influence and unconscionable conduct. Basil, acting on behalf of his mother as her tutor, was seeking to have the court set aside the transfers on the grounds of undue influence and unconscionable conduct. We'll deal with undue influence first as the court did. At the time of the transfers, Georgette was 75 years of age and she needed daily assistance for things like obtaining food, preparing meals and being taken to medical appointments. 
communications with her were difficult and she had some cognitive impairment. Justice Windier found that this established that Georgette was vulnerable and dependent and put Helen in a position of dominance over Georgette, who relied on her for so much. This meant that they were on an unequal footing when it came to the transfers, because Helen was dominant and Georgette unlikely to oppose her and was easily influenced by her. The transfers gave a substantial benefit to Helen, with no apparent benefit for Georgette. As the court found, there was never any intention for Helen to pay Georgette for the 16% share she had transferred. Justice Windia determined because of Georgette's lack of understanding, because she was easily influenced, because the transfers did not benefit her, and she did not receive independent legal advice, the transfers and bank mortgage were brought about by undue influence by Helen. The transfers should therefore be set aside. Moving on to unconscionable conduct. Even though Justice Windier agreed with the argument of undue influence, just in case the decision was appealed and the appeal court didn't agree, Justice Windier also looked at the claim that there had been unconscionable conduct. Justice Windier found the position here clearer. Georgette was under a significant disability. She was unable to communicate without great difficulty. She suffered a cognitive deficit and she could not read. The transactions as a whole were of no benefit to her and financially detrimental to her and of considerable benefit to the defendant, Helen. Justice Windia therefore found Helen's conduct in bringing about the transfers and the bank mortgage to be unconscionable. Quoting Justice Windia, The inequality of position arising from the proved weakness of capacity, age and special problems of the plaintiff make this conclusion inevitable. Bank mortgage. In relation to the mortgage over the Newport property that allowed Helen and Spiro to purchase the St. Ives home, the court found that it was detrimental to Georgette and only benefited Helen. So the mortgage allowed Helen to purchase the St. Ives property, and if Helen defaulted on the mortgage, the bank could seek to be reimbursed from the St. Ives home, but also from the Newport property. So the Newport property was put at risk and the risk affected Georgette's share in the house as well, and yet she gained no benefit from it. The court found as far as possible, orders should be made to ensure the discharge of the mortgage over Georgette's 66% interest in the Newport property. The court allowed Helen a period of some months to discharge the mortgage. The court also ordered that Helen indemnify Georgette against any liability she may have under the mortgage. To indemnify is to protect another person against loss. So if Georgette suffers a financial loss because of the mortgage, Helen will be required to compensate her. I could have just said it in plain English, but next time you hear the term indemnify, you're going to know what it means. You might even like to use it sometime, see if you can get someone to indemnify you for any losses. Finally, Helen was ordered to pay Georgette's legal cost. The Appeal Helen appealed those orders on the basis that, one, Justice Windier was wrong in his conclusions about Georgette's capacity, two, that Georgette should have given evidence in court, and three, that Basil had not established that Georgette was incapable of handling her own case and needed him to act as tutor. Starting with the first basis of appeal, Helen argued that Justice Windier was incorrect to find that Georgette didn't have capacity to understand the transfers and the mortgage. 
He had found that the stroke she suffered in 1994 affected her capacity to understand the transfers and the mortgage. And yet from 2002 to 2004, she had also done four wills and a power of attorney. And the solicitors had confirmed each time that she understood what she was doing. So wasn't that evidence that she did have capacity? The appeal court did not agree with this argument and emphasised that a person may have capacity to do certain things and at the same time lack capacity to do others. The court focused on whether, at the time of signing the transfer and the mortgage, did she have capacity to understand them, and the medical evidence said she did not. Just because she may have had capacity to execute a will does not prevent the court from finding that she didn't have capacity to do other things, like the transfer and the mortgage. The second basis for the appeal was the Jones versus Dunkel inference. This inference is taken from the Jones versus Dunkel case, and the rule is that where there is an unexplained failure to call someone to give evidence, the court may draw an inference that the uncalled evidence would not have assisted the party. I'm going to try to use an example to explain this concept. Dan is involved in a legal case, and a key part of his case is that he posted a letter to his old client on a certain day. He claims that his secretary, Mary Ann, drafted the letter, saw him sign the letter, and she posted it on that particular day. So Marianne would be a valuable witness because she could say if things happened the way Dan said they did. But she is not called to give evidence, and no sufficient explanation is given as to why they didn't call her. The court might infer that the reason Dan's team didn't call her to give evidence is that it would not have supported what he says happened. Why else wouldn't Dan want her to give evidence? So that's the Jones versus Dunkel adverse inference rule. Using that argument, Helen Side argued that Georgette was present in court, and yet she wasn't called to give evidence. Could they not infer that this is because it would not have supported Georgette's case? The court didn't go for this. They said that all the evidence demonstrated that Georgette had difficulty communicating, especially on matters of complexity. Even having an interpreter wouldn't assist, as she switched between languages and sometimes her own form of a combination of them. Added to that, Dr. Malik had concluded that she had difficulties in cognition as well. Those were sufficient reasons for her not to give evidence. The third basis for the appeal was that Basil started the proceedings as tutor for Georgette, on her behalf because she was disabled. Helen did not accept that Georgette was disabled and argued that Basil wasn't authorised to start court proceedings on her behalf, and that the judge should have therefore dismissed the case. The appeal court goes into this in a bit of detail, including at what time in proceedings should a party raise this argument. If a person disputes the authority of the tutor to, com to commence proceedings in the name of a supposedly disabled person, the proper course is to move to have the tutor removed and to bring an end to the proceedings as soon as you become aware that this person is acting as tutor. There is an exception where the matter is so intertwined with the matter of the court proceedings that it would be more efficient to hear the matters concurrently. However, the Court of Appeal found that Helen hadn't raised this argument in the right form. The best way I can try to explain it is that Basil started these proceedings as his mother's tutor and the primary theme of his case was that the two transfers and the mortgage should be reversed. Helen made a response to his application and in her defence statement she argued that a. Georgette did the transfers and the mortgage of her own free will and knew what she was doing, and b. that Basil didn't have authority to bring the matter, that Georgette didn't need a tutor and she should be starting these proceedings herself. So basically, Helen was bundling the two matters together 
and it was that bundling that was incorrect. Her response in defence should have only dealt with the transfers and the mortgage, and she should have lodged a separate application to the court, arguing solely that Basil didn't have standing to even start legal proceedings and to have the matter thrown out of court. That is a really basic summary because the judgment of the appeal court goes into this issue alone for several pages, reciting cases that have dealt with it in the past and what other judges have said. I decided to skip all of that and have probably already given you more information on the topic than you wanted. The appeal was dismissed with cost. This means that Helen's appeal was unsuccessful and she would be required to pay Georgette's legal cost of the appeal. So the outcome of the case is that Georgette gets to keep her 66% interest in the property and Helen has been ordered to discharge the mortgage over the Newport property that puts Georgette's 66% interest at risk. You may have noticed that one of the factors the court looked at when determining whether there was undue influence and unconscionable conduct was that the transactions did not benefit Georgette. The court noted that neither the transfers nor the mortgage benefited Georgette, only Helen. This won't be relevant in all cases. Sometimes people enter into transactions with no intention to gain a benefit for themselves, with only the wish to help others. And the court did recognise that even where there might not be a direct benefit, it still might be what the person wants. For example, they did consider that if Georgette had wanted Helen to get the Newport home when she dies, the transfer and the fourth will together were a way to make sure that happened. However, when taken with the other factors, Georgette's medical condition affecting her capacity, her dependency on Helen for care, and Helen's influence over her, the fact that there was also no benefit to Georgette assisted the court to find that there had been undue influence and unconscionable conduct. The court isn't there to prevent older people from doing selfless and generous acts. It is only one puzzle piece of a much larger image, and when all put together, may create the image of elder abuse. Or it may not. That was the case of Deo versus Dulaveris. The citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on the case or recommendations of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. If you have identified or if you are at risk of elder abuse, you can call 1800 353 374. Or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 024324 5611.